But I want to focus more on this question then about why we actually study church history. I think a little bit we're influenced, maybe a lot, by Ellen White, right? The great controversy. She took church history seriously, so we know something about it, and we think it's important. But she herself would say we should have more of a reason for doing something. We should have a biblical reason for doing something, not just because she said so. She didn't view herself as the source of church doctrine, and we'll talk more about this later. She was a guide to what the Bible taught. Um, what is sola scriptura about? And I think when we start looking at this topic, we discover that there are two extremes, two extremes. One says we should look at all other sources of authority, and then maybe the Bible, but really human reason are, is more important. But there's another extreme that we've experienced in 20th century America, which says the only thing you should study is the Bible and nothing else. And you might, there's a phrase that, I've, uh, that some people use for that. Rather than sola scriptura, it's solo scriptura. Solo scriptura. Sola scriptura in the Latin means by scripture alone. And it implies that by scripture alone means that truths and information from elsewhere are measured by scripture alone, right? It is the sole ultimate authority, but it doesn't mean there aren't other sources of, of information. Um, I've gone back a slide. And I think that the reason that we study scripture, if you uh, remember, Dr. Wallin was talking about different kinds of readings, uh, reader-centered uh, approaches to interpretation, reading the text through certain lenses. And you know, the reality is whenever we read any text, we always read it through lenses, even if you don't have to wear reading glasses like I do, you have the lenses of the time and the place that you're living, right? The language that you use. You realize you don't read the Bible in the original language, do you? You read a translation of the Bible and every translation is an interpretation. Um, and there's a couple of good examples from the Bible just to, we have to do at least two things when we read the Bible. We have to interpret it. And I thought I'd bring up this old chestnut uh, from Luke where Christ on the cross says to the good thief, truly I say to you, is the comma there? Or is it today, comma, you shall be with me in paradise, right? He's either saying, I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise, or I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, which reading is the correct reading? If you limit yourself to just that sentence, you can't actually tell. It's ambiguous. There isn't punctuation in the original Greek, right? How do we come to the interpretation we come to? Because we read the larger context. And I think one of the good arguments is uh, when uh, is it Mary tries to detain him after the resurrection, he says, I have not yet ascended to my father, right? And so we use this larger context to go back to this particular text to come to, but there's an interpretation that needs to happen, right? And if we're not familiar with that other story, or we're not thinking about it, we may not come to the right interpretation. Then there's beyond interpretation is translation. Uh, Christ says, I am the bread of life. 
Now, in our Western society, that makes sense. We understand that bread is a staple, right? That we, we still eat quite a bit of bread these days. It means you're not wasting your money, you're buying something that's essential to your life. Uh, but what if you're from Japan or China, right? The bread of life, they're not even sure what bread is. It's an exotic food. So if Christ was speaking then, and maybe if you were translating the Bible, you would want to say something like, I am the rice of life, which gives the clearer idea of a staple of diet that is vital to life. The problem with culture is that it's a little bit like being a fish in a fish tank. Uh, have you ever wondered if fish know that they're wet? Right? Are they, do they know what water is? Or it's something they've been in all their lives, they're not really conscious of it. They just experience it. And they don't really know it if, unless they fall out of the fish tank onto the dry ground, and then they become aware of it. And it's much like us. If you've ever traveled uh, overseas in a developing world country, uh, if you've traveled, if you've worked for the church overseas, you might suddenly realize what a kind of individualistic uh, way of life we have here in the West and how we interpret the Bible in a very individualistic way. Whereas if you go to South America or Asia, you realize how much more important the community is. And so there's a strength in the world church. When we study the Bible together across cultures, we can become more aware of where we are reading our culture into the Bible rather than actually finding biblical principles. And we can help our friends and neighbors in the church do the same thing. And maybe between the individualism of North America and the communitarianism of a place like China or Japan, maybe there's somewhere in the middle that's actually best, right? Both the individual is important and the community is important. So. I don't want to overstate this case. Of course, the postmodern dilemma is that language is so relative that we don't even really understand each other, and all communication breaks down. But the Bible has given us a promise that God sends the Holy Spirit, and that we can meaningfully, even if we don't perfectly understand the Bible, we can understand it sufficiently well to know the way of salvation, right? That even the simple person need not err from the way of salvation. When the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. But this is my question for you today. Does the Holy Spirit ever use other people to guide you into an understanding of biblical truth? Right? Has anyone ever studied and come to the understanding of the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church entirely 100% on their own? Or have you had some influence from a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, a Bible worker? That's been my experience, right? Parents, teachers, pastors, all helping form. Now, does that mean that they were the spiritual authority in your lives? Maybe when you were seven or eight or nine or ten, but at some point you get old enough and the authority is the Bible. But they show you, like the comma in, uh, in, in the book of Luke that I shared with you, and then the story about Mary. Once I share that story with you uh, or with someone, they can see that perhaps the better interpretation is with the comma after today. But it's not that I am now their spiritual authority. It's that I am bearing witness to a way of understanding the Bible. And the Bible itself seems to teach this. 
where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Is God not with you when you're on your own? No, I, I believe he is. But there seems to be a special sense in which God guides us into biblical understanding. The context of this passage, if you remember Matthew 18, is church discipline, which involves taking biblical standards and applying them in the real world. And so there's this sense where God can help us understand and apply the Bible more accurately, more fully, when we are studying with a group, because our various minds will help each other see these possibilities of interpretation that maybe others don't see. Uh, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading Isaiah, right? And he was just not understanding it. Philip comes along and tells him the story of Jesus and opens his eyes. Is Philip now his spiritual authority? No, it's still the Bible, but there's this witness to the truth. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos the way of God more perfectly. Christ on the road to Emmaus. And this is a great story because does Christ reveal who he is? He's disguised, isn't he? He's anonymous. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't even himself want to be the authority in making the disciples understand this. He wants them to see the authority of Scripture. And so he explains it to them so they can see the authority coming from Scripture, and then he reveals himself. Right? So um, the question is, if we believe this is true, that the Holy Spirit uses other people in the church to help us understand Scripture, why do we just study with other Christians who happen to be alive? C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age, and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited or irrelevant. So we often ignore the past because we know the present is so much better, right? We can fly planes and run computers. So what could they possibly know in the past about like relationships and spiritual virtues? And is it possible that in the technology age and the information age, wisdom is often overlooked? I think there's good arguments to be made that actually wisdom was more appreciated in times past. And so really, and if you think about it, the further someone is away from our culture, the more of a perspective on our culture we receive. Right? So if I come up from Berrien Springs to, uh, to uh, the upper part of Michigan here, Edge, Edgemore, wherever we are, <laughs> then we may have had some different experiences that we can share, but if I speak to someone from South America, I'm going to get an even bigger uh, assessment of, of my perspectives. Now think if I take someone out of our time and place, like Martin Luther from 500 years ago, suddenly I'm speaking to a person who has a very different view of the world, who can maybe tell me something about the materialistic assumptions, the individualistic, the commercialized, industrialized assumptions of my age that you and I share that we can't really help each other see because we're so embedded in it, but they can. And so it can be a powerful, powerful thing. And I think there's a great Bible text that speaks to this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It talks about being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, laying aside our sin and then looking unto Jesus, the author of our faith. Why didn't Paul just say, look unto Jesus, look unto Jesus? He starts by pointing out the witnesses we're surrounded with. Who are these witnesses? 
Hebrews 12 comes after Hebrews 11, which is the chapter of, of faith, right? These are the heroes, the martyrs, the prophets, those who've suffered and been persecuted for Christ. Were they alive when Paul was writing? This is their memory. This is the history of them. This is their ideas and their lives speaking out that somehow point to Christ. And somehow as we engage with them, we can see Christ more clearly. And for us, this cloud of witnesses isn't just limited to the Bible, but it includes the whole faithful of church history, right? We are surrounded by the great cloud of the Martin Luthers and the Calvins and the Wesleys and the William Millers and the Ellen Whites. And they can tell us something about our time and place that will help us see Christ more clearly, which is what we were singing about in the song. Seven churches of Revelation? That's good. I like that. Yeah. They, they come down through time, and uh, each of them has an angel that speaks to us. The Bible itself is clearly very interested in using history to help people understand their contemporary situation more fully. We're constantly told to think about the history in the past and, and to set up landmarks and remember, remember how God has led. Ellen White, we have nothing to fear except that we forget how God has guided us in the past. So having established that, that it's important to engage with people outside of our own time and place to understand our own situation better, I want to spend just a few moments talking about the cultural and social biases of our day, some of which we are aware of. And if you study intellectual history, you can kind of bring this to the surface. Um, some of we're not aware of all of it. Here is just a few words you may have heard. Scientism, empiricism, individualism, consumerism, materialism, evolutionism, and many more. Often these words hit, fit under a heading of something called modernism, modernism, right? Which prioritizes reason over authority. And typically modernists set aside religion and the authority of scripture and things that require faith, and they want certainty about things you can test and touch and, and em empirically observe. My good friend, the scientist here who knows the scientific method, knows what I'm, I'm talking about. And so scientists become the new high priests of the modern age, right? They displace the theologians uh, and the philosophers as being the pathway to truth. And this is what happened in the 19th century. And there was two responses to this new standard of authority. Some people use the word foundationalism to describe this process whereby um, certainty in matters of truth had to be based on things that you could absolutely demonstrate and be certain of. People trace it back to Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. This is the one thing I can be certain of. And then I build on this uh, a structure of certainty for my life. Well, I won't discuss that theory except to say that if you look at the Bible, that's not the way the Bible suggests that we understand and know truth. The Bible suggests that there's evidence for things, but that we experience things, and we know through a combination of evidence and experience, and we come to a, a certainty that's based on empirical data, but also an experience we have with the real world and with God. Setting aside that for a moment, uh, there were two responses to this in the Christian community, and this is relevant to the Adventist church, because quickly we became sort of pinned in between these two extremes. 
and influenced by one or the other at various times. So the first was biblical and theological liberalism, and the second was biblical and theological liberalism. Now most of us are aware of the problems of biblical and theological liberalism, right? And we see it in people that deny the truth of the Bible and creation and the second coming and Christ and get rid of sola scriptura. But most Adventists kind of have this vague sense that maybe there's this fundamentalism thing out there, but we're not quite sure what it means. And maybe it's not so bad to be a fundamentalist because really don't they believe in the truths of the Bible and creation and, and, and the second coming and... And yet I want, to, I want to try to show to you that there really are these two extremes, and Ellen White herself was very aware of them and helped steer the church in between these two extremes. Um, the liberals, you see, the, the, the challenge was to the notion of being certain of something. And Christians had always preached a certain kind of certainty about an experience with God and with Christ, so we believed that we could compete in this arena of ideas that was demanding certainty, but people began to be confused as to how. And the liberal response went something like this. Oh, the Bible is a historically generated document that clearly has some inconsistencies in it, and we don't have the original autographs, and uh, there are multiple textual traditions, and we can't base certainty on this kind of historically uncertain or not entirely precise document. So our certainty is found in our personal experience. And in fact, they said, the Bible really doesn't have to be certain or even accurate about history. And maybe the miracles didn't happen, but we can be certain about our experience. And they moved certainty entirely internally. And they began to view the Bible as a collection of stories that people had written about their experiences with the divine that weren't dictated or even particularly inspired in some sense. You could write the same kinds of things in the Bible if you just opened yourselves to the kind of experiences they had with God. So the Bible became less of an authority in people's lives and more of a kind of guide to your experience with God, which could be just as authoritative as anyone else's. And this is where the mainline churches and liberal Protestantism has gone over the last hundred years, right? The Bible isn't necessarily historically accurate. Creation story is a myth. Some of them will accept the New Testament miracles, but some of them not even that. But there is a divine, and we can sort of be in touch with it, but the Bible certainly isn't going to guide my life as a guidebook or a rule book like the Ten Commandments uh, as the Adventists teach. So the, that was the liberal side, and we were pretty skeptical of that. The fundamentalist side said something different. They said, oh no, the Bible may have been historically created, but it was God that was creating it, and he superintended the process. And in fact, because they needed to have absolute certainty, they said he dictated the Bible word by word and letter by letter, right? And it's interesting, because we're a bit more attracted to that, right? How can you say the Bible is how can you make the Bible be too true? <laughs> right? the, the, biblical authority is a good thing. But if you're familiar with Ellen White, she says in a number of places that God didn't dictate the words of the Bible, right? That he gave, he inspired the people and the ideas. And, and the Holy Spirit guided the words, but ultimately the words were those that the people chose. 
And uh, what happens when you put your faith and certainty almost entirely in a book, in a set of ideas, then the important thing about Christianity becomes how properly you define those ideas. And so, whereas the liberals had said Christianity is going to be a thing entirely about our experience, the fundamentalists began to move to the other side and said Christianity is going to be a thing almost entirely about our beliefs and how properly they're defined. And much less emphasis was placed on experience or even action, but we have to be orthodox in the most precise way. And we write more and more complicated systems of belief and we try to get it perfectly right. And there's a word for this, it's um, Protestant scholasticism, uh, which is a, a well-known phenomenon. So what about Adventists? Which way did they go? Well, but we believed that truth was important, and the Bible was historically accurate, even if it wasn't um, verbally dictated. But we also believed that experience was important. And sometimes you hear Ellen White speaking against theology and for Christian experience, right? And she's reacting to this extreme of creating Christianity as primarily a system of correct belief. Did she care about doctrines? You bet she did, right? I mean, it's full of the great controversy and the desire of ages, but she wanted to keep the church from embracing either of these extremes. And during her lifetime, she did well at that. Now, after her death, the church became more influenced by the fundamentalist side of the debate. Because the fundamentalist, there was a series of books released in 1915, the year of her death, actually, where they wrote a series of articles defending the great fundamentals of the Christian faith. And that included creation, and three articles on creation and creationism. And that was a very attractive to us as Adventists because of our belief in the Sabbath and the importance of creation. But there were also several articles on inspiration that put forward a verbal inerrancy view of inspiration. And when Ellen White was no longer around to sort of balance us out and caution us, we gravitated towards that. And we began to embrace it in terms of both the writings of Ellen White and the Bible. Now this had a couple of effects, of impacts. Um, for reasons that I don't want to go into fully today, but I can briefly describe to you, that a fundamentalist verbal inerrancy view of the Bible led to a very socially conservative outlook. So that the fundamentalists tended to keep women out of pulpits and not allow them to teach mixed groups, uh, tended to keep, to defend slavery and to defend segregation, um, to defend the status quo. And there was part of a sense that many of the fundamentalists were also Calvinist determinists that believed that God chose, made you, chose you where you should live, chose your eternal destiny, and if he made you a slave, you should stay there. And if he made you a master, you should stay there. Um, whereas this more moderate view of inspiration was usually held by people who believed in human free will, that you could better yourself, you could make better moral choices, and you could change your status in society. There was also a sense that if you, and this is why I, if you were at Dr. Wallin's um, presentation today, I suggested there might be a difference between the plain reading of scripture and the plain meaning of scripture. And I, I think that there may be something to this because if you take a plain reading of scripture, often what it means 
is that you take very seriously your initial impression of what the words mean. And maybe those words have in fact changed over time. Maybe they mean something different than they meant to people in the past. And so your plain reading may just be plain wrong if you don't look at the larger context behind it. And it, it, let me give you a quick example, the issue of slavery. The Bible says, slave, obey your masters. Well, if you're in 19th century America and you believe in the plain reading of scripture, you just say, see, the Bible says that the slaves should obey their masters. That's it, the end of the story. If you believe in the plain teaching of scripture, then you may actually think a little more broadly about what the Bible says about God and how he treats people and fairness and not brutalizing other people. And you might say, let's look a little more closely at this word slavery in scripture and compare it with what actually exists in 19th century America. And if you did that, you would discover that biblical slavery, Hebrew economic serfdom, was quite a bit different than the racialized, chattel, kidnapping, man-stealing slavery that was in the southern United States. And that the Bible never actually supported or allowed that, but has several specific texts that outlaw the stealing and kidnapping of people for slavery. So, if the, the fundamentalists, and there's some people here who get that <laughs> and, and the importance of it. Another good example is the smoke of their torment ascendeth forever and ever. If you take a plain reading of that, you may find yourself believing in eternal hellfire. If you do a plain meaning, I think you can see that once you understand God and his character and then you look more closely at the Greek word for eternal or, or the Hebrew word for eternal has a different conception than is in our Greek Western oriented mind. And so fundamentalists were conservative socially in ways that we weren't. We used to argue uh, with the fundamentalists about slavery, about discrimination, and also about women. Uh, while we didn't ordain women in our early church, we did encourage them to be licensed ministers. And in that role, they could teach and preach and evangelize congregations of men and women. Uh, we allowed them to be conference officers. In fact, there was a point where a, third, a quarter to a third of all treasury and um, education department positions in the conferences were held by women. There's three top general conference offices, president, vice president, and treasurer. In the, in the 1800s, that office of treasurer was held by three different women. After Ellen White dies, no more women ever hold that position. In fact, by 1930, after the system is sort of run through, there are no more women licensed ministers. There are no more women conference officers. Now, this has, uh, uh, there's a, at least a couple of things that help explain this. The, the depression happens in 1929, and therefore often men are hired for a job because they're, they're heads of their families. But a good reason, an explanation for this that I believe uh, uh, is very important is this influence of fundamentalism. As we buy into this more rigid view reading of scripture, we also buy into the social and gender views that this fundamentalist community have been harboring and which we have believed previously is actually against the teaching of scripture. So this is a very um, significant um, event in our history. There's a, a 1919 Bible conference um, that 
where the old guard, people who worked with Ellen White, Willie White, A.G. Daniels, they know that Ellen White has used resources and sources in her writings, that she's used editors after her writings to help her pull them together. They know that mechanical verbal inspiration isn't the way things work. And yet, some of the other leadership are nervous about this. They want to create in people's mind a very pristine image of the way that inspiration works. And there's this 1919 Bible conference, the transcripts of which you can read, where there's arguing back and forth as to how we should be open with our people about the realities of inspiration and the way in which they, it, it works. And the arguments are inconclusive, but there's a very, A.G. Daniels almost prophetically says, you know, listen, we can keep our membership in the dark about how inspiration works and try to create an artificial model in their minds to keep, keep a greater sense of sort of respect and obedience in, in their midst. But eventually, the truth is going to come out and there is going to be great disruption when it does. Right? And these were prophetic words. Because what happens? The records of those meetings are lost and set aside. They don't really resolve what to do, but the history forces of history take over, and we become more fundamentalist in our outlook. And we do move into an era of patriarchy and not supporting civil rights. And then in the 1960s, these manuscripts are discovered, and more people discover Ellen White's use of uh, sources and resources, men like Ron Numbers, um, Graybill, and they discover true things. They discover that Ellen White used sources, which she herself acknowledged and said. And so you can see some of the danger that comes in to artificially setting up to a, a standard of inspiration that the Bible itself doesn't hold to because people get disillusioned and then they overreact and they throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So in the 1960s, the mainstream part of the church really began to, to realize that we had flirted with this fundamentalist quarter and we began pulling back. But Segments in our church, there was an, uh, in the 60s and 70s when these things began to emerge, there was then a reaction. Liberalism had largely stayed out of the church, but at that point there was a reaction against the fundamentalism. And so you might know that Adventist Forums was started in 1967, Spectrum Magazine about a year later. And they had a series of articles critiquing Ellen White, pointing out some of the excess excessive claims that had been made for, uh, for her, but instead of rebalancing and having a more healthy, balanced view, they went too far the other way, and they began bringing in some of the truth as encounter and uh, not proposition. And so we do have in segments of our church that liberal influence that we'd earlier almost entirely rejected that causes many arguments but you can see now that maybe Spectrum Magazine is one extreme, but some of the loud conservative voices on the other extreme, they're in a kind of war uh, of the past when, let me ask you a simple question, is Adventism in its heritage either of those things? Is it liberal? No. But is it fundamentalist? And while we share some things with the fundamentalists, at our core, we have some fundamentally different ways of viewing scripture and truth than they did. Um, there's a funny little quote here from Winston Churchill. If a man is not liberal when he is young, he has no heart. And if he is not conservative when he is old, he has no brain. <clears throat> 
And this is often the way that people's politics go. When they're young and idealistic, they tend to be progressive and liberal, but as the realities of life uh, descend on them, they become more conservative. And apparently he allegedly said this. Uh, um, I haven't been able to track the actual historical basis down. But I think that we would agree that we need to have a heart and a brain, right? That we need to see both sides. But if I was to ask you, what is our church more threatened by, a lax liberalism or a creedal conservatism, which would you say was the greatest threat to the Seventh-day Adventist Church today? Both. Both equally? Okay, so let me add, there's three possibilities. Who would say a lax liberalism? Who thinks that's the greatest threat to the church today, a lax liberalism? Just a few hands. Usually that gets a lot more response. What about the creedal conservatism? Creedal conservatism. Okay. Probably more, probably about double, but not everyone. I still haven't lured you all into a vote. What about both of them together, both equally dangerous? Okay, about an equal number. So I grew up in Southern California, and when I was a young person, I would have said that the real danger was a lax liberalism. Uh, and then I moved to the Midwest for a few years, and I began to understand that maybe the liberalism was a response to a certain closed-mindedness that existed in certain Adventist uh, circles. And I began wondering if maybe they were both equally a threat. And then I came across this Ellen White quote. And Ellen White understood the DNA of our church very well. And she suggested this. As a people, we are certainly in great danger if we are not constantly guarded of considering our ideas because long cherished to be Bible doctrines and are in every point infallible and measuring everyone by the rule of our interpretation of Bible truth. This is our danger, and this would be the greatest evil that could ever come to us as a people. Quite a strong statement, isn't it? While I was in Europe, I felt deeply moved there must be a different spirit and element brought into our conferences. If one should hold ideas differing in some respects from that which we have heretofore entertained, not on vital points of truth, not on the Sabbath or the sanctuary or the state of the dead or basic sexual morality, right? She's defending central tenets of Christianity. But on other, on, on more peripheral ideas, there should not be a firm, rigid attitude assumed that all is right in every particular, all is Bible truth without a flaw, that every point we have held is without mistake or cannot be improved. This I know to be dangerous business, and it proceeds from that wisdom which is from beneath. So according to Ellen White, and I think this is because of the way we come into the church, right? Prophetic truth, give up your jobs and come in uh, and seek and hold on to it, and sort of in our DNA is a, is a need to be certain, and, and I'm not against that, but Ellen White is saying here that that means that the greatest danger we have and why is that the greatest danger? What is Protestantism about? Protestantism is about present truth, which is unfolding truth, right? Theologian once said, the greatest heresy is to stand still when God is moving forward, when God is revealing new truths. And it was our pioneers who, if they had insisted on defending everything that they believed, would have never have become Adventists, right? The Sabbath, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, all these things were new things. And Ellen White understood that the process of Protestantism being an unfolding present truth would die if it took on the, only the task of defending everything we know now because God is leading us forward. So I want to talk, that's kind of a, an introduction as to why we should care about what the Reformers say. 
and what it is that the particular cultural circumstances have done to our church and what extremes that we're facing in our church. And, and several of those extremes have to do with the Bible and how we approach the Bible. And I think we can all agree that our beliefs as Christians and Adventists need to come from the Bible. Our doctrines are built on the Bible. So how we think about the Bible and approach the Bible becomes very important. Right? If we have an unbalanced view of how to treat the Bible, either from a liberal perspective or a fundamentalist perspective, we're going to have problems. And so I want to call on some of the historical witnesses about the Word of God, about sola, tota, and prima scriptura. And, uh, we, you know, I raised this question earlier, what does sola scriptura mean? And I think I've tried to make a case for why we should listen to the reformers and other people who've come before us. They're not authorities instead of the Bible, but they're witnesses to how we can better understand the Bible. Um, talked about solo scriptura. There's a little story that I sometimes tell. I'll give you the nutshell version because I don't want to run out of time. But when I was at PUC many years ago, we uh, were hanging around in the dorm room on a Friday night, and it was a weekend full of rain, and we were bored, and we decided to do something adventurous. And uh, somebody said, let's go to Linda Falls. There's a popular hiking spot on Sabbath, and you had to drive about eight or ten miles to get there. And we said, let's go to Linda Falls, and let's not hike at Linda Falls, but let's get dropped off there and walk cross-country through the woods and the hills back to PUC. No one had ever done that, and we could do it in the rain, and it would be a big adventure, you know, uh, how college students think. And so sure enough, the next day we got uh, uh, ferried off to Linda Falls, and fortunately somebody had thought to bring a compass. Now we live in the age of GPS, but uh, compass is one of those things that has that needle that always points almost directly north. And so um, we started... Uh, we got there, and I have this great sense of instinctive direction, just ask my wife, and I'd been watching where we were going, and the sun, and the way the wind was blowing, and uh, you know, where the moss was on the trees, and when we got out of the car, I said, you know, this is the way to PUC, let's go, gentlemen, and so off we went through the woods, and somebody had the audacity to question my sense of direction, and they pulled out the compass, and they said, well, just for kicks, just for fun, let's look at the compass. And I said, okay, sure. So they pulled it out, and I discovered that my sense of direction was off a couple of degrees, uh, and I soon discovered that the compass claimed that PUC was actually this way. And I couldn't persuade the others that they should follow me instead of the compass, so we all went that way, and it's a good thing we did, because in Two or three hours, we began to recognize some hills and places that weren't far from PUC, and we made it home, perhaps a little wet, but happy uh, to be there. So in this story, what does the compass represent? The Word of God, right? The authority of the Bible, which um, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but he's going the wrong way, and the compass turns him around the other way. So, yeah, that would represent sola scriptura in the ultimate authority overriding my reason and sense of direction. But let me ask you this. When we used the compass and got it out and pointed ourselves in the right direction, did we 
only look at the compass as we walked. Because if we'd done that, it may not have ended successfully either, right? Could have walked into trees, over cliffs, and in fact, the compass is one or so degrees off of mag you know, magnetic north. Is slightly There's a whole host of things. But the point was that we used the compass, but the fact we used the compass didn't stop us from using our other God-given senses of sight and sound and uh, sense of direction that was used in harmony with the compass. And this is sort of an attempt to illustrate the difference between solo scriptura, which should be, versus sola scriptura, which is we have a primary authority, but we have other sources. Thank you, complementary sources of truth. Martin Luther, probably the event of history that most fully and profoundly illustrates the idea of sola scriptura is his testimony before the Diet of Worms, right? Who can forget it? That, that wasn't, that was 495 years ago, 494 years ago, because it's four years after 1517, 1521 is the Diet of Worms. Luther, the, the Pope has already banished him and said his writing should be burned, but the emperor listens to uh, the, the prince that uh, oversees Luther and says, you've got to give him a trial. And so the emperor says, yeah, okay, we'll give him a trial. And they, and they take him to Worms, bring him before the papal legate, the cardinals, the bishops, before the Holy Roman Emperor himself, before the 16 or so German princes, before 85 dukes. There is the gathered um, leadership and aristocracy of uh, the church and the state. And here was one little monk standing before them all, and they were saying, these writings are wrong. And if, who are you to stand up against the mighty authority of the majority of church and state? And what is Luther's answer? I'm Less I am convicted of error by the testimony of scripture or by manifest reasoning. I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant. Sola Scriptura. Scripture is authority over everything else. Scripture gave Luther a place to stand on when the rest of the powers of the world disagreed with him. But it's very interesting in this statement that illustrates Sola Scriptura, he actually throws in this line about, unless I'm convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest reasoning, right? It seems that he recognizes a broader authority than merely the text of Scripture, or more than just the text of Scripture. If you can show that he's logically wrong from truths that flow from Scripture, then he will recant. And when you study Scripture, you discover that he has much more of an understanding of sola rather than solo scriptura. He quotes freely from church fathers and creeds in support of their doctrines and practices, and so do Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Arminius, and the rest. And they use reason and experience in doing so. But they make clear that these fathers and creeds are only authority insofar as they agree with Scripture. Okay? So they use them, but they recognize that Scripture is superior. And this brings me to a question. What is the Word of God? Can't be that hard, surely. 
The Scripture. The Scripture is the, the, the Bible is the Word of God. I think that's a good answer, but the Bible itself tells us something about a Word of God, doesn't it? Is there another Word of God? What about John, right? John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. So Christ is the manifest Word of God to which the written Word of God testifies and reveals, right? The Scripture is reality. The real world that seems very broad, doesn't it? So God has inscribed his word on nature. So I heard somebody else say nature as the word of God. Who would say that nature is a word of God? Not currently, because it's fallen and has sin in it, right? So I would have been dubious of this. This sounds too broad and liberal for me. And until I came across this quote from Ellen White. And she said this, the great storehouse of truth is the word of God. And then she says, dash. Now she's going to tell us what the word of God is, right? She says, the written word, the book of nature. She says, the book of nature is part of the word of God. And then look at this, and the book of experience in God's dealing with human life. How many of you have thought that your life experience and story and that of your family contains a message to you from God? That God is trying to reach you and your family through the experiences and the trials and the difficulties and the good times that you've had? We overcome by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. I think that she would include both, right? Because what is larger history if it's not the history of a bunch of individuals written over time. And certainly, our shared history is more accessible to all of us, and so it's easier to preach and teach about. I can't really talk about your life and your family's history. But I think the suggestion here, do we believe that God is trying to deal with all of us, right? Does God only deal with Adventists or with Christians? Or is he trying to reach all of us? Trying to this isn't such a radical idea either. What does John say? Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So, so this is so this is so this is where sola scriptura, the sole ultimate authority of scripture, becomes very important, right? So, because the experience can never contradict or overcome scripture. But on the other hand, how many, how, would we give our Bible studies any differently if we believed that as we brought the written word of God to people, we could actually ask them about their experiences and their family's experiences with God's leading in their life? And that we match the written word of God with building a bridge to, to how God is... They wouldn't be at your Bible study if God had not been leading in their lives, right? That's right. That's right. So... This is a very kind of profound and powerful statement. Um, God speaks, Christ speaks in a variety of ways. And if you think about it, it's, is it possible to use the written word of scriptures to create a barrier to hearing the actual word of God? Has that happened in history? Did the Jews do it? Uh, Christ himself, let's see, where do I have that? And I want to make clear that Christ will only communicate in a manner consistent with Scripture, right? This is what we're concerned with, and it remains the ultimate authority in our Christian law. 
But sola scriptura, there is a soul to sola scriptura. It is the sole supreme authority, and it is also the sole basis of doctrine. All the, all the teachings that the church formally teaches as being a requirement for church membership must be based in scripture. Now, whether we flesh those, how we flesh those teachings out, well, this is where prima scriptura comes into play. There are other sources of truth. Can you get to 1844 using the Bible alone? You have to know some dates from history, don't you? You have to know when a decree came down from Darius. You have to know, and you can only find these things in history books. You can't teach prophecy without bringing in information from the outside. Without history. So the authority is still scripture, but we're drawing on other sources of information. Also in uh, creating church offices. How many church offices are there in the Bible? Elder, deacon, deaconess? What about your church? You only have those offices, right? Oh, treasurer, religious liberty director, uh, right? The Holy Spirit allows us to expand that as long as we're being consistent with Scripture. What about worship practices, Sabbath school and church? Uh, 9.30 Sabbath school, 11 o'clock is the divine service. We developed that. We inherited it from the Methodists, probably. Right? Camp meetings, potluck, all these things are traditions of the church that are perfectly okay. Christ, the Bible says that Christ had the custom to go to church on the Sabbath, and that's a perfectly fine custom. Where does it become problematic? If we put those into stone and we cannot modify them when change is needed because of our changing community, the changing needs of our young people and churches and church members. So John Wesley used to describe the four sources of theology, scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. Theologians used to call this the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I don't really like that because it suggests that all four of them are equal, and I don't want to lose the specialness of scripture. And Wesley believed in that. He didn't actually call it the quadrilateral. And I think if he was alive today, he would call it the scriptural stool. And I don't have a stool up here, but um, you can see, uh, where's the picture? I had a picture of the stool. Um, huh, it's gone away in this slide. But if you think about the, the surface of the stool, be scripture, supported by the three legs of reason, experience, and tradition. Though I prefer the word witness, because tradition is kind of loaded uh, in, in, in the use in the, in the Catholic Church. And are these, but it's important then, are these sources all supported by Scripture itself? Right? We, we don't want to create a, a, a quadrilateral or a stool that's just based on Wesley's reason or uh, even uh, supported by the other reformers. But what about the Bible? Does the Bible tell us there are other sources of truth about God? Romans 1.20 and Psalms 19 talks about God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and nature being seen in the created world. Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And notice it's not just the existence of God and the power of God, but it's also the morality of God, so that men are without excuse. There's something about nature and the way it's created which points to a right course of conduct. Right? Is biology set up so that certain sexual relations are healthier and more productive than others? Biology tells us these things. And in them is a moral lesson that God says nature holds people accountable for, even if they don't have the written scriptures. 
right. Yep. The Bible and experience, uh, Christ's Sermon on the Mount says, if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. Is it possible to do those things? In fact, some zealous early church leaders took them rather too literally. But I can see that most of you, with two eyes and two hands, <laughs> have brought your experience to bear to understand in a literary way what Christ was meaning to say, right? That this is, you should avoid sin uh, with, with any means possible. And it, your eye and your hand don't actually cause you to sin, it's your mind, right? What about... Uh, Tradition and witness, I mentioned this about Christ and custom, coming to Nazareth uh, was his custom. We have important organizing traditions, and they become dangerous if they harden into the dogma of church teaching that cannot be changed. Christ talked about teaching, um, you, hold, you leave the commandments of God and hold fast to the traditions of men. You reject the commandments of God that you may keep your tradition we think, oh, the poor Jews doing that. We would never hold on to our traditions at the expense of the commandments of God. You know, the main commandment that Christ gave us when he left was, what was it, twofold? Love God, love man, but just before he ascends, the commission. What is the divine commission? Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel and baptizing. Mission is the divine commission. And is it possible that the way we do church and the forms that we insist, that we often insist we must follow, do those ever interfere with our mission? And if they do, then they become human traditions that actually cause us to undermine the, the main command of Christ to the church, right? There was a, the Southern uh, Union ministerial director uh, tweets out some very interesting comments from time to time, and he says, some Adventist churches are going to have to choose between what they love more, their traditions or their young people. All right? That's where we have to sit down and say what's principle in Scripture and what's our culture and where can we more effectively reach our young people in our communities without violating the principles of Scripture, even if it means letting go of some of our traditions. So Scripture without moral reflection can actually equal suppression. Slavery, a couple of examples. Some of the staunchest defenders of slavery were those that insisted that morality could only come from the Bible. You can only use the Bible sola, solo scriptura. You can't bring other kinds of moral reasoning to bear. It's not right. And because the Bible says, slaves obey your masters, that's the beginning and end of the story. Did our pioneers accept that? In fact, Ellen White, using scripture and moral reasoning, said that slavery was so obviously morally wrong that she made it a test of fellowship. If you openly supported slavery, she said you should be disfellowshipped from the church. It's interesting. We once used a stand on an issue of social policy to say whether you should be a member of the church or not. Women's suppression, not talking just about ordination, but disallowing women from talking to anyone other than women and children in church or polygamy, child abuse, spare the rod, spoil the child with no limits. You know, because the Bible says you can beat children, that's the end of the story, and there's no limits to, to that. Or think about Romans 13. You must support the powers that be. How often have dictators and Christians used that to justify supporting uh, Hitler 
or a Stalin or someone like that. So, in closing, we must maintain the Bible as having the central role in our system of truths, as being the sole basis of doctrine and the ultimate judge of all other sources of knowledge. We have to reject higher biblical criticism and liberalism. We have to reject the idea of putting human reason over Scripture, of holding Scripture to the standards of human reason. But we can't go to the other extreme of depriving the Bible of other supporting sources of knowledge and information that can be used to clarify, expound, and apply the Bible. We deprive, the, ironically, if we try to make the Bible so high and solely the source of everything we believe about morality and God, we actually narrow it and we make it speak less fully to the world and the society that we live in. And you can see this from, does the Bible say you shouldn't smoke or use drugs? I mean, if, if you're going to limit yourself to the literal wording, you're going to be very confined. We have to reject that kind of fundamentalism. And here's a few, a few thoughts in closing. We can only interpret Scripture aright and apply it well with the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I think in dialogue with the community of faith. Do I seek to understand Scripture through the Spirit, above it and around it? Am I open to hearing the voice of God, not only through the Scripture, but through nature and through God's providences in my life? All those things, of course, subject to Scripture, but I shouldn't uh, close my, my life and mind to the Word of God elsewhere. Am I willing to study with my community to walk into unfolding present truth? It's only then that I'm a Protestant. Think about that word Protestant. I'm protesting against current abuses. If I am only believing what we've believed in the past and those abuses have gone away, I'm not protesting anything anymore and I'm not a Protestant. There's always abuses of power in our world, misuse of spiritual things, always the need for protest but only as we learn to continue to apply the principles of the Bible in our own day and age. Thank you for your time and attention on this. I do have maybe a minute or so to entertain a question or two if there are, and uh, then I'll have the closing presentation. Tomorrow's topic is on... I'm going to go back to, to the beginning of the Reformation again and talk about when you're looking at competing interpretations in the Bible like we talked about the competing paragraphs, uh, the competing commas in the today, there was an overarching principle that our pioneers used as a principle of interpretation to decide which interpretation was the best. And I'm going to share that with you tomorrow. It's something called the moral government of God. The great controversy theme is much older than Ellen White's book or even the Adventist church, and it goes back into the 16th century to the most important reformer that you've probably never heard of. It also relates to the seal of God and Sunday laws in a rather exciting and, and, uh, and interesting way. So, hope I can see you then. Let's uh, have a word of prayer here at the end. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your watch care over us. We are deeply grateful for the many words that you send us. The words that uh, Christ gives us uh, in our daily life, through nature, through human experience, but most importantly, through the written word of God by which we can measure and test and judge all these things. May we be open to your word, for I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.